Well, I, I looked at my, my clock, my phone, looked at the clock before I started up here the first time, and I thought, well, I guess we'll be getting out a little early tonight. But now since we sang that other song, Andy, hey. <laughs> I do appreciate your patience with me. I said a few weeks ago, make lots of mistakes, or there, there's one, there's another one right there. And uh, appreciate your patience with me. And anyway, hope it's not too distracting. Let's turn to 1 Chronicles chapter 17. We started in this passage last week. I have to admit, I don't preach a lot of sermons from 1 Chronicles, uh, but uh, this is a good one. I, I hope to be able to do the passage justice. It's the passage that tells us about God's covenant with David. So this is a very important uh, covenant, very important agreement, really in the, in, in the whole, in, in God's plan, God's plan to save. Uh, God called Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 and told him that in his descendants, in his offspring, in his seed, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And that, that develops, God develops Abraham's descendants into a great nation, he gives them the land of Canaan to live, with, to live in. And then the, the, the plan is unfolding through the years. And then we come to David, and, and God enters into an agreement with David, sort of the next stage or next phase in God's covenant, God's plan to bring a Savior into the world. And we saw last week, we looked at the first part of this passage, which details the covenant for us. Uh, God has taken David from uh, b- being a young shepherd, a young man as a shepherd, and he makes him king over Israel. That takes a little while for that, that to develop. Between the time he's anointed by Samuel, to, he begins to rule. But he's a man after God's own heart, and God blesses him, and God raises him up. Uh, And, uh, of course, God brings Saul, that king, that first king, brings Saul down. Saul decreases. David increases because the Lord is with him. And finally, David's reign over Israel, over all the tribes of Israel, is solidified and confirmed, and and he begins to reign. He reigns in all about 40 years over over Israel. Uh, But his, his reign is solidified, as I said a moment ago, and it's confirmed, and he reigns over the the entire nation. In fact, he's so settled in in Jerusalem, which he makes his capital, that he builds a house for himself. And this must have been a grand house. It's made of cedar, and and stone workers are involved in it. And and so we we remarked last week that most houses, ordinary houses, wouldn't involve that, that amount of work and craftsmanship. And so this, for its time, must have been a grand house. Now, the Ark of God throughout David's reign, uh, from the time, really throughout his whole life, was housed in a tabernacle, in, in a tent. And David thought, you know, that's just not right. There's something, something wrong about that, that, that I, here I am, I'm a human being, and I live in a grand palace, I live in a great house, but the Ark of the, the Covenant, the Ark of God, sitting over there in a temporary shelter that's kind of been moved around through the years, and that just doesn't seem right to me. And so David says, I I know what I'll do. I'll build a house for the Lord. I'll build a temple for the Lord. He tells Nathan the prophet about his plans. And at first Nathan says, that's great. The great idea, you, you do whatever is in your heart to do. But the Lord speaks to Nathan and says, you need to go tell David that I have other plans. 
You, you tell David, you are not going to build a house for me, but I'll build a house for you. We highlighted that word house in this particular passage, the different ways that it's used. David wanted to build a house, a temple for the Lord, but God said, no, but I'm going to build a house for you. I'm going to make your descendants a dynasty, and your son will rule after you, and, and his son after him, and his son after him. So I'm going to build a house for you, and I'm going to establish your seed, your child, your offspring as king forever. And his kingdom will know no end, and his throne will, will never cease. And we ask the question, well, who fulfills that promise? Is it, is it Solomon? That God says, I'm going to build a house for you, and then, and then your descendant, he'll build a house for me. Now, now, is that Solomon? Well, Solomon did build a temple for the Lord, but Solomon's reign was not forever. His, 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 his reign came to an end. And so we got to look to somebody else. Well, maybe it's Rehoboam or one of the other descendants of David that ruled. And no, no, it can't be any of them because their reigns were only temporary. And they don't match the description that we find here in this passage. So we look for someone else. And of course, we find the fulfillment in Jesus. A descendant of David, the New Testament goes to some lengths to establish that. That Jesus of Nazareth is a descendant of David. And he ascended to the right hand of God where he sits on David's throne, which is also called God's throne. If you compare 1 Chronicles 17, 14 with 2 Samuel 7 and verse 16, God's throne is David's throne. That's where Christ sits. His rule will have no end. And so this is a great promise. This is one of the outstanding uh, promises in, in the Old Testament having to do with God's plan of salvation. So this is a great thing for David. Now, how does David respond? That's what we want to look at tonight. How does David respond to this? And so one of the great promises calls for a great response. And that's what we have in the passage that follows. In fact, it's this section of the passage that really drew my interest and made me think, well, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work something up on that. And I think that will be a good, uh, a good message. And so let's just read from verses 16 through the end of the chapter. See David's response. We'll make some comments and we'll try to draw some, some good, uh, good lessons from it. And so we'll begin in verse 16. We'll look at verse 15. According to all these words and according to all this vision... Nathan spoke to David. Then David the king went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me this far? This was a small thing in your eyes, O God, but you have spoken of your servant's house for a great while to come and have regarded me according to the standard of a man of high degree, O Lord God. What more can David still say to you concerning the honor bestowed on your servant? For you know your servant. O Lord, for your servant's sake, and according to your own heart, you've wrought all this greatness to make known all these things. O Lord, there is none like you, nor is there any God beside you, according to all we have seen with our, or heard with our ears. And what one nation in the earth is like your people, Israel, whom God went to redeem for himself as a people 
to make you a name by great and terrible things in driving out nations from before your people whom you redeemed out of Egypt. For your people Israel, you made your own people forever, and you, O Lord, became their God. Now, O Lord, let the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house be established forever, and, and do as you have spoken. Let your name be established and magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is the God of Israel, even a God to Israel. And the house of David your servant is established before you. For you, O my God, have revealed to your servant that you will build for him a house. Therefore your servant has found courage to pray before you. Now, O Lord, you are God, and have promised this good thing to your servant. And now it has pleased you to bless the house of your servant, that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord, have blessed, and it is blessed forever. So that's just a magnificent prayer in response to the great promise that God has, 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 has promised David and the great blessing that he's bestowed on it. So just talk a little bit about, just notice a few things about the passage. First of all, David understands that something great has happened. Something unusual, something remarkable has happened here. He calls it a great thing in verse 19. You have wrought all this greatness to make known all these great things. And so David, David understands there's something different about this. Now, I've enjoyed a lot of blessings from the Lord over the course of my lifetime. He's done a lot of good things for me. After all, I am the king of Israel. But this is something great. There's something different about this. He understands that God's promise has to do, verse 17, with a great while to come. Or some versions might say the distant future. You're, you're, you're talking about things that are going to happen a long time from now, a great while to come in the distant future. So these are not just promises that I'm going to experience in my lifetime and good things that are going to happen to me or to my children. You're, you're talking about your plan for a long, long time to come way out in, into the future. There's this phrase here in verse 17 right at the end where he says, You've regarded me according to the standard of a man of high degree. That's a, that's a difficult phrase little difficult section to translate. That's the New American Standard Bible, the New King James reads similarly. The English Standard Version says that you have shown me future generations. And in the footnote of the English Standard Version, you've got an English Standard Version, you look at a little footnote, a footnote there, it says, the meaning of the Hebrew is uncertain. So it's kind of a difficult section to translate. The New English Bible says, that you've treated me as a man already embarked on a high career. Walter Kaiser, good, good scholar, translated the phrase, or translates the phrase, the charter for humanity. You have shown me your charter for humanity. You've shown me your plan for humanity in the distant future. And so David, David understands when he talks about, I'm going to establish your king, kingdom forever, and your son will sit on your throne forever, and uh, that, that kind of thing. I, I'm looking way off into the future. And David understands that that implies that God has a plan, that God's in control, that God can make all of this come about. 
God has a plan that's laid out before Him, a plan that involves all of mankind. The plan culminates in God establishing the throne in the kingdom of the Son of David forever. That's remarkable. There's something different about this promise. It stands out among all the other things. And in verse 18, David says, or David acknowledged the honor that God had bestowed upon him. And so David considered this, this is an honor for God to, to choose me as the one through whom all these things will come about. David already had had a long-standing relationship with God. He was a man after God's own heart as that young shepherd. And God had been blessing him throughout his life. In fact, I'm reminded of the 22nd Psalm and a statement that David makes in that place, the 22nd Psalm in verse 9. David speaks to God. He says, You are he who brought me forth from the womb. You made me trust uh, when upon my mother's breast. Upon you I was cast from birth. You've been my God from my mother's womb. You know? <laughs> You've been my God since the beginning. But it's an honor for me to be the one through whom you're going to work your plan. Remarkable, uh, even to David. And so let's see if we can draw out from this, this prayer, this response to God in, in light of all of this, some things that might help us with our prayers. And so I would ask for a show of hands, but I don't know if it's necessary. How many would like to improve their prayers? Everybody, you know, everybody would say, that's me, I need to do better. And maybe a lesson like this can help us, can maybe, we can see some suggestions that might help us improve the quality of our our prayers. The first thing David does that we're going to talk about is he he highlights the greatness of God. You see it in verse 20, O Lord, there is none like you, nor is there any God besides you, according to all we've heard with our ears. There, there's no one, there, there is no God but you. There's no one like you. You're, we say sometimes, the one true and living God. And if you see in verse 21, God's greatness is manifested in His work. In the Old Testament especially, maybe throughout the Bible, you know, when, when you think about God, we, we don't have a philosophical, theological description of God. What we have is a description of God in what He does. Who is God? He's the one that created the world, you know. Who is God? He's the one that parted the Red Sea. You know, who is God? He's the one who enabled us to take the land, you know. And that, that's how the greatness of God is, is revealed and manifested in, in Scripture. And so the greatness of God is seen in His work. And so look at verse 21, especially in the history of Israel. What one nation in earth is like your people, Israel, whom God went to redeem for Himself as a people to make you a name by great and terrible things. And so the great and terrible things that you've done, that's the way that you've redeemed this people for yourself. And so, the first thing that we're going to note that David does in his prayer is he acknowledges the greatness of God. And the, the Scripture is clear. There is no other God than the Lord. Remember Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. One. Yeah. There is one God. The Scripture is very clear on that. We're studying from the book of Isaiah 
in our, in our auditorium class, Isaiah is, is very clear, really kind of stands out in his affirmation that there is one God, the, the Lord. In chapter 44 of Isaiah, verses 6 through 8, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and the last. There is no God besides me. Who is like me? Let him proclaim and declare it. Let him recount it to me in order. From the time I established the ancient nation, let them declare to them the things that are coming and the events that are going to take place. Do not tremble. Do not be afraid. Have I not long since announced it to you and declared it to you? You are my witnesses. Is there any God besides me? Is there any other rock? I know of none. And so there is one God. There is none like you, nor is there any God besides you. In the New Testament, we find the same thing, of course. Think about Acts chapter 17, when Paul goes to the city of Athens, and, and he preaches there, and he's passing through the city, and he sees all the shrines devoted to the various gods that they were worshiping. He sees an inscription to an unknown God, he says, therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. And then notice this, verse 24. The God, singular, the God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. The God, not, not the gods, <laughs> singular, the, the one God. That there is, there is one God. You see it clearly in a passage like 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And we're going to begin in verse 5, 1 Corinthians 8, verse 5. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for Him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through Him. One God and one Lord. And so... And there are other passages we could point to, but you get the point. In our prayers, when we pray, it would be good to include statements such as, You alone are God. You are the only true and living God. There is none like you, nor is there any God beside you. Again, I'm not saying we've got to say that every time. and don't, certainly don't want to suggest some sort of ritualistic formula for our prayers, but to acknowledge God's greatness, that He is the only God, and we glorify Him, even in our prayers. The greatness of God is seen in His works, of course. Back uh, several months ago, I'm not sure how long ago it, it was, remember I preached a series of sermons about the mighty works of God. I thought it went over well, was well received, but the mighty works of God demonstrate for us God's greatness. Now, in this, in this particular passage, 1 Chronicles 17, David especially seems to point to those events, those things that God has done in connection with the rescue of Israel out of Egypt. In the 145th Psalm, uh, David says, I will extol you, O my God, O King, I will bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you. I will praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord, highly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall praise your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. So God's greatness, again, seen in His works, seen in His 
mighty acts. The promise God made to David was great in, in David's eyes, but he says here in verse 17 that it was a small thing for God to do. Verse 17, a small thing. Great in David's eyes, but not all that hard for God to do. <laughs> a small thing for God to accomplish. So what's impossible for man is easy for God, isn't it? With God, all, all things are possible. Again, David refers to the work God did in rescuing Israel, securing the land of Canaan for them. He redeemed them, the passage says. He rescued them by great and terrible things. That would include things like the ten plagues that God sent upon Egypt to persuade Pharaoh to let the people go, the parting of the Red Sea, the provision of water and quail and manna throughout the wilderness, the defeat of Israel's enemies, the conquering of Jericho. All of those things are these great and terrible things. Leading Israel by a cloud and by a pillar of fire. Just imagine seeing that every day. Just, just great and terrible things. God has redeemed a, a people to Himself. And God has done many other great things for His people. Most notably, He's redeemed us through Christ from bondage to sin and a destiny of eternal torment. And so when, when, we, when we pray, we recognize and acknowledge God's greatness. He is the only God, and He has manifested His greatness to us through His wonderful works, His mighty deeds, creation, rescuing Israel from Egypt, uh, enabling them to conquer the land, especially the gift of His Son, who came and made atonement for our sins, something impossible for man, but very much possible for God. Not only that, God has done great things in our lives. Now, some are blessed in one way, of course, and some are blessed in another way. We're not all blessed in exactly the same way, but we all enjoy the blessings of God, food and clothing and shelter and family and friends and all those kinds of things. The book of 1 Timothy chapter 6 in verse 17, Paul says, Instruct those who are rich in this present world, that's us, not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. All, all, God supplies us with all things we enjoy. And so God has worked in our lives. God has done great things in our lives. We all enjoy the blessings of God. And so when we pray, we need to acknowledge what God has done for His people in the past and what God is doing for us in the present. So among all the rivals that are out there, so to speak, God stands alone. There is none who compares with Him, with power and ability and wisdom and, and all of those kinds of things. And we want to acknowledge that in our prayers. That's what David does. He acknowledges God's greatness. These things are great. You've done great things. There's none like you. But the second thing we're going to highlight is that David acknowledges his own ungreatness. It's probably not a word. Ungreatness is not a word. Unworthiness. His weakness. That's really the thing that catches your attention in the very first part of the passage. David, the king, went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I? O Lord God, and what is my house that you've brought me this far? 
Who am I that you've done this for me? And throughout this, throughout this passage, throughout this prayer, David refers to himself as your servant. I'm a servant. I'm your servant. I'm the king. He understands he's the king. But I'm God's servant. <laughs> and so you see his humility, acknowledging his own unworthiness. What have I done? Who am I that you should choose me to do these great things through? You see in verse 18, right at the end of verse 18, for you know your servant. What more can David still say to you concerning the honor bestowed on your servant? You know your servant. You know, you, you know me. You, you, know, you know what I'm like. You know all my shortcomings. You know my weaknesses. You know where I fall short. You, you know me. There's no hiding from you, you know. And yet you've chosen me. Who, who am I? Well, what is my house? I don't come from a great house. What, what's my house? that you've chosen me. And so no wonder in verse 18, he considers this an honor that God has bestowed upon him. God, David's gratitude then is clearly seen. He knows he's undeserving of God's blessing, but God has in fact chosen him in spite of the fact that he's undeserving. He's honored and grateful. Be good in our prayers if we could say something like that. Who am I that you've blessed me in this way? Who am I that you've blessed me with all, all these things that I, that I have in my life? And who am I that you've blessed me with Christ? Well, what have I done to deserve any of that? What makes me deserving of my lifestyle? Well, what have I done that those who are not as blessed have not done? You know, there, there are others in the world Smart as I am, a lot smarter. And yet they don't enjoy the things that I enjoy. There are a lot of people in the world, they work as hard as I do, maybe harder. And yet they don't enjoy what I enjoy in life. What, what, what have I ever done? Who am I that God has blessed me in this way? It'd be good for us to think in those terms when we pray, wouldn't it? I was reminded of Deuteronomy chapter 8 and God uh, is, is telling the people on this occasion, you know, when you get in the land and you enjoy all the things that, that you're going to enjoy in the land, have all the privilege and the benefits and the advantages that come with living in the land of Canaan, don't forget me. I don't want you to forget me, you know. And so Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 17, Otherwise you may say in your heart, My power and the strength of my hand has made me this wealth. Well, we, we don't want to get to that point. My power, the strength of my hand, has made me what I am. Well, David sure didn't think that way, and be a mistake for us to think that way as well. What makes us deserving of our lifestyle? Who, who are we? What have we done that God should bless us in this way? And what makes us deserving of our relationship with God? Our holiness? Oh, I know why God has chosen me. I'm a holy guy. You know? No, no. Not really. Our moral goodness, our moral superiority. I know why God has chosen me. See, I'm morally superior to the riffraff out there. No, mm -mm. no. If we think that way, we're, we're fooling ourselves, making a serious mistake. Who of us has not sinned in some way? Who, who among us has not sinned in thought, in word, or deed? We've all sinned. 
Consequently, we're undeserving of fellowship with God. A couple of good passages to illustrate the point that we're undeserving of these things, and yet God has reached out to us, reached, taken the initiative to bring us to Himself, sent His Son into the world to make atonement for our sin. Ephesians chapter 2. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that's now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. Well, what makes us deserving of this relationship with God? Our goodness? Moral superiority? No. Mm -mm. In fact, we don't deserve it. Who am I that you've blessed me this way? What, what is my What have I done that God has reached out and blessed us in this way? It'd be good if we could incorporate that into our prayers from time to time, wouldn't it? Just an acknowledgement of that gratitude, that humility that we see in David's prayer. David is interested in God's name being glorified, not his own. Let's go back to 1 Chronicles 17, look at verse 23. Now, O Lord, let the word that you have spoken concerning your servant, concerning his house, be established forever, and do as you have spoken. Let your name be established and magnified forever. Let your, David's not interested in his own name, is he? Well, this, this is great. I, I'm gonna, people are going to be talking about me for hundreds and thousands of years to come in this wonderful book. Just look how famous I'm going to be. No. Let your name, he says, let your name be established and magnified forever. Verse 21. What one nation in the earth is like your people, Israel, whom God went to redeem for himself as a people, to make you a name by great and terrible things? So David's not so much interested in himself and his reputation. He's interested in God's name, God's reputation. It's really the attitude of someone who is solely focused on glorifying God. That's, that's David's concern. Um, solely focused on God being glorified. And what happens to my name is, is incidental to all of that, insignificant in light of that. Now, there are others in the Bible who had similar attitudes. You might remember in Exodus chapter 32, the children of Israel have passed through the Red Sea. Moses goes up on the mountain. He, he's there for 40 days. Children of Israel down at the foot of the mountain appeal to Aaron to make a golden calf, which he does. And of course, all of that works out terribly. <laughs> And God, God's determined, I, I'm going I'm to wipe them out. I'm going to wipe out, tells Moses, I'm going to wipe these, this generation out, and, and I'll start over with you, and, and from your descendants I'll develop a great nation. In verse 11, Moses entreated the Lord as God and said, O Lord, why does your anger burn against your people whom you've brought out from the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why, why should the Egyptians speak, saying, with evil intent? He brought them out to kill them in the mountains and destroy them from the face of the earth. Turn from your burning anger and change your mind about doing harm to your people. Moses is interested in God's name. 
in God's reputation. You know, if you were to do that, the, the Egyptians are going to blaspheme your name, it's, it's, and they're, they're going to think less of you. So change your mind about all of this. These things are, uh, are mentioned again in the book of Ezekiel chapter 20. Get Ezekiel 20 and, and verse 9. I actually mentioned several times in this particular chapter. Ezekiel is reviewing these events, God bringing the children of Israel out of Egypt and uh, His anger burning against them on this occasion. But God says, I acted for the sake of my name that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations. That's what Moses is interested in. He's interested in the, the name of God not being profaned. That God's name being established. That God's name being magnified. His name being held in honor among all the people. Solomon said, Blessed be His glorious name forever. Do you remember what Jesus taught His disciples to pray? Remember that? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And so our interest is in the, the name of God. Of course, the name stands for the person, doesn't it? And so you are to be hallowed. Your name, you are to be glorious and blessed and praised forever. Look at the book of Romans chapter 1 and verse 5. And Paul talks about the reason he went and taught among the Gentiles Romans 1 verse 5, through whom, through Christ, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for His name's sake. For His name's sake. You know, not, not to build ourselves up and promote ourselves and for, for His name. We were doing this for His name. Our prayers should reflect our interest in glorifying the name of God. We should live our lives to the glory of the name of God. And when we ask for things, which the, the, the New Testament, the Bible, invites us to ask God, make our requests known to God, nothing wrong with that. And yet we're not asking for purely selfish motives. We're asking so that God's name might be glorified. I thought about Mark chapter 5, where the, the man with the demons, uh, Jesus encounters this man with the demons, and he casts out the demons, and they go into the herd of swine. You remember that? Swine one down into the Sea of Galilee and so forth. And so the people began to implore Jesus to leave their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed was imploring him that he might accompany him. He didn't let him, but he said to him, Go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how He had mercy on you. And you, so you go tell the people what the Lord has done for you. Wouldn't that be great for us to pray that? We pray for God to, to give us things, the things that we need. We make our requests known to God. It's not, it's not for my own selfish enjoyment. It's, it's not in my own self-interest. But so the name of God might be glorified. And you can, you can see how that would work. Here's someone that, that's, that's ill, maybe seriously ill. And we pray that the Lord might extend His healing hand and heal him. And by healing this person, God is glorified. The, the person gets well. That's great. That's, that's a wonderful blessing. But go and tell what the Lord has done. It's what the Lord has done for me. So our interest is in 
God's name and the magnification of God's name and God's name being glorified. And then the last thing we're going to point out is God's commitment to David gave him the courage to pray. You know, if you notice that in 1 Chronicles chapter 17 and in the course of our reading a few minutes ago, verse 25, For you, O my God, have revealed to your servant that you will build for him a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray. Now, you've told me that you're going to build me this house, this, this dynasty, and that one of my descendants will sit on the throne forever and ever. You, you, you've told me that, and that has given me the courage to pray before you. Now, now you notice the word courage, if you use a New American Standard Bible or maybe a King James Bible, is in, is in italics. And that means that the translator has supplied that word, that that word is not in the Hebrew text. And it uh, doesn't mean that word is to be emphasized or anything. That's a word that the translator, the editors of, the, of this particular version of the Bible has, has supplied to clarify the meaning. I mean, otherwise it would read, Therefore your servant has found to pray before you. It's found something, something needs to be supplied there, it seems. And so they've supplied the word courage. But it might be the word confidence. Because you promised this, I've got confidence to pray to you. Or boldness. I've got boldness because of what you've promised me. Or, or something like that. Those ideas are not very much different than the courage. But the idea is that the promise that God made helped David understand God's interest in him. God, is, God has chosen me. He's interested in me. God's made a commitment to me. And if God is willing to make a commitment to me that way, surely He'll hear me when I pray. And so He's chosen me. He's made these promises to me. And this is a remarkable thing. And if He's done all that, surely He'll hear me when I pray. Doesn't the same thing hold true for us? Again, what's God done for us? We enjoy innumerable blessings from His hand, physical blessings, spiritual blessings. He's shown us that He loves us, and He wants to be our spiritual Father. He, wants to, he, he has shown us that, especially in the gift of His Son, that He loves us. He wants us to be His children. Won't He listen to our prayers? Doesn't that give us boldness and courage to come before Him in prayer? Romans 8, verse 32. He did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him over for us all. How will He not also with Him freely give us all things? Sure, surely in that all things is the blessing of prayer. And God's willingness to hear us when we pray. Another good passage to consider in light of all this is 1 John chapter 5, and verses 13 through 15. These things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence which we have before Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request which we've asked from Him. Now he's writing this to those who believe. And we have confidence when we go before the Lord and make our request. We, we know He's going to hear us when we pray. After all, look at the commitment that He's made to us. Look at the love that He's bestowed upon us. 
So no wonder in light of all that that we are encouraged throughout the New Testament to pray. Luke chapter 18, verse 1. Jesus was telling them a parable to show them that at all times they ought to pray. At all, all times they ought to pray and not to lose heart. Other passages, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 17. Pray without ceasing. Colossians chapter 4 and verse 2. Devote yourselves to prayer. And so Jesus invites us to ask, to knock, to seek. And we'll be heard. The door will be open and we'll find. How do we know that God will hear us? He's made an incredible commitment to us, including His only begotten Son. In light of that, we have boldness, we have confidence, we have the courage to pray. Hebrews 4, verse 16, Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. And so, let's draw near with confidence. The only thing left is to do it. <laughs> the only thing left about all this is, is to exercise the privilege. It's a great passage. I, I'm, I'm not sure I've done it justice. I'm sure I haven't done it justice. And I thought this afternoon I was looking at all this, and I thought, I'm going to have to come back to that and try this again. But it is a great passage. And we can learn so much from it. We focused on David's prayer, really in, a, in an effort to make our own prayers better and, and more effective. Maybe we can find some answers in a passage like this. Acknowledge the greatness of God. Understand that we're not worthy of the great things that God has done for us. Focus on God's name being glorified instead of our own selfish interests. Look at what God has committed to us. And that will give us the confidence, the boldness, the courage to approach that throne of grace in prayer. So let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we acknowledge your greatness tonight, your splendor, your glory, your power, your majesty, your wisdom, all of those things that, that all of those qualities and characteristics that you possess as God. You are the one living God. There, there is none other besides you. And so we bow before you, Father. We, we acknowledge your greatness and our own unworthiness. You've blessed us in so many ways. You've blessed us physically far beyond what we deserve. You've blessed us spiritually beyond what we deserve. And we ask like David, who are we? What have we done that you've blessed us in this way, that you've brought us this far? And yet, Father, you have. And for those things, we are thankful and we pray, Father, that we will repay your generosity with a life of devotion. Our Father, we pray that in all that we say, all that we do, in our life, in our word, in our deeds, that your name will be glorified. And Father, when you bless us, we pray that we will use those blessings to glorify your name to others, that, that we'll be willing to say, look at what the Lord has done for me. He can do that for you as well. And Father, we pray that we will always take advantage of this, of this blessing, that we'll have the confidence and boldness
to come before you and make our requests known to you. We, we know that you will hear us. You've invited us to pray to you and to devote ourselves to prayer. And so, Father, we make our requests to you. We also acknowledge, Father, that in all things may your will be done. And help us, Father, to accept your will and to uh, submit to it. We know, Father, you love us, that you want the best for us, that you'll do the best for us. And help us simply to trust that and obey. So, Father, we're thankful for this opportunity tonight to open your word, to look into it, and to see the things that will help us be more the kind of people that you want us to be. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.